Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. There I was, first year out of college, took a year to be a student missionary, ended up in Washington State to be a youth pastor doing task force work, and a buddy of mine calls me and says, there's this girl you have got to meet. I tell him, man, I came out here to be with the Lord, dedicate my life to Him. I don't want to have anything to do with girls. Well, he calls me two weeks later and he says, Philip, you don't understand. I can't sleep at night, brother. I think the Holy Spirit's telling me you've got to reach out to her. Her email sat on my shelf for two months till I finally emailed her. And sure enough, back and forth these emails went for six months. Boy, it started to get real serious. I freak out a bit, but man, keep pushing ahead and realize this is going to be the one. I'm going to get married. But married life, the excitement, the honeymoon, it only lasts a little bit till all of a sudden it gets real serious. All of a sudden you start making mistakes as a husband and I remember sitting there crying in my car, God, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And then the verse comes to my mind, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. And it was in that moment I realized how much more grace I needed to have for Elena, how much more grace she needed to have for me, how much more we needed to have grace for the circumstances we were in. We were 20 and 22 babies, man. But that moment, that epiphany changed everything as the years went forward, how we loved each other well, giving grace through the struggle, which produced who we then became, a mature, married couple. So I can't look and say, oh, I'm so sorry for those years. No, I say, thank God for those years because who we are today is amazing because of the grace we gave. Some years ago, Christianity had a piece in which the author quoted a storyteller. A storyteller telling a story that I immediately resonated with. The story was about a young man who was a Lutheran. But as I read the story, I thought, that's me, that's Adventism right there. It might be Lutheran in the story, but I recognized it in my own life. So from the storyteller, here comes the story. Larry the sad boy was saved 12 times in, in the Lutheran Church, an all-time record. Between 1953 and 1961, he threw himself weeping and contrite on God's throne of grace on 12 separate occasions. And this, in a Lutheran church that wasn't evangelical, had no altar call, no organist playing just as I am without one plea, while a choir hummed, and a guy with shiny hair took hold of your heart strings and played you like a cheap guitar. This is the Lutheran Church. 
Adventist church, I said. Not a bunch of hillbillies. These are Scandinavians, and they repent in the same way that they sin, discreetly, tastefully, at the proper time. Twelve times. Even we fundamentalists got tired of them. <laughs> and then the storyteller says this. God did not mean for us to feel guilt all of our lives. There comes a point when you should dry your tears, join the building committee, and start grappling with problems of the church furnace and make church coffee and be of use. But Larry just kept on repenting and repenting and repenting. Am I the only one that recognizes some of that in my own life and history and background and story? Or is there any other Larry here? Maybe a few Larrys that know a little bit about that sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent cycle. And end up asking, isn't there something else beyond this? W.H. Auden, the poet in a piece, writes about King Herod. King Herod, considering the reality, as he's been told, that God has become a baby and has been born in human flesh. To which King Herod says, this is going to mess everything up. Suddenly, justice is going to become pity. And that's going to throw the order of things out of kilter. So what is the order of things according to King Herod? He says, this is the order of things. I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive. The world is a beautiful place. <laughs> so what about it? Any Larrys? Any Herods here? What about that repent and sin and sin and repent cycle into which so many get caught, having no experience beyond that, no experience that leads to growth? What about that experience? The truth is we're taking grace very seriously in this series. In fact, I'll remind you of a quote from an earlier sermon from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, yesteryear's preacher, who said, speaking probably mostly to us as preachers, he said, unless you're getting accused by people of playing fast and loose with the grace of God, you're probably not even yet preaching the grace of God. That's true. And then I think of the words of the writer to the letter to the Hebrews, who said, make sure that you see to it that no one misses the grace of God. So we've tried to take that seriously in this series. Try to take that challenge and try to move it forward by each of us. Whoever walks in the doors of our congregation, we want to make certain that we do anything with our power that they don't miss the grace of God. But sometimes people wonder, is that all there is? Is it just sin and repent, sin and repent, a vicious cycle from which we can never fully escape? Are we all named Larry? Is there something beyond that? Well, then we come to Paul. And Paul suggests that there's more to the life with Jesus than just sin and repent. In fact, if you listened to our young people a bit ago in their reader's theater of Romans 5, you may have found that your heart was touched with what Paul says. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Amen. 
We know that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And you say, Amen. And it says that most people would never die even for a good person, but God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you say, Amen. You feel the thrill of God's grace in your heart and life, the forgiveness that he extends, the acceptance that he manifests. In fact, if you were to follow Paul on through chapter 5, I might summarize some of what he says there by saying that no matter how dark your sin, no matter how difficult your life, no matter how much you have failed, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is greater. But it's right about there that we can get into some challenges. Right about there that trouble comes. And it came even to Paul because as he moves to the end of chapter 5, there is one statement there, one phrase there that maybe encapsulates all that he is trying to say, and that's this phrase. He says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So people apparently have been listening to Paul what he's been preaching and teaching, reading what he has been writing, and it causes them to ask a question. If that's true, the more sin, the more grace, then maybe we just keep on sinning, just stay in that sin-repent, sin-repent cycle because then we'll really see an abundance of grace. And so Paul writes Romans 6. I want to go to Romans 6. I'm going to begin by reading the first two verses because they encapsulate the difficult situation in which Paul finds himself while trying to underline the power of grace and yet also hear what his opponents are saying. So Romans 6, I begin with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So to that sentiment that says, let's just all change our names to Larry and just keep on repenting and repenting and never growing, just living in sin, Paul says, no, 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 that is not what I'm saying. In fact, I thought William Barclay summarized very well what Paul is dealing with and how he's responding to it. These are the words of Barclay. He says, as he has done so often in this letter, Paul is once again carrying on an argument against a kind of imaginary opponent. The argument springs from the great saying at the end of the last chapter, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It runs something like this. The objector. You have just said that God's grace is great enough to find forgiveness for every sin. Paul. That is so. The objector. You are, in fact, saying that God's grace is the most wonderful thing in all this world. Paul, that is so. The objector, well, if that is so, let's go on sinning. The more we sin, the more grace will abound. Sin doesn't matter, for God will forgive anyway. In fact, we can go further than that and say that sin is an excellent thing because it gives the grace of God a chance to operate. The conclusion of your argument is that sin produces grace. Therefore, sin is bound to be a good thing if it produces the greatest thing in the world. 
Paul's first reaction is to recoil from that argument in sheer horror. Do you suggest, he demands, that we should go on sinning in order to give grace more chance to operate? God forbid that we should pursue such an incredible course. Paul wants nothing to do with that kind of thinking, despite the fact that he recognizes that our failure, our feebleness, our flaws increase the amount of grace we receive. So what then is Paul saying? How are we to sort that through and understand what it means for our lives? Well, I want to read the full section verses 1 to 14 in Romans 6. But I want to read them from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. After spending some time with the passage, I thought Peterson captures in a contemporary way what is sometimes a fairly dense argument. So we're going to read Romans 6, 1 to 14, from The Message. Here it begins. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a life in a new land. That just happened this morning. We watched it occur. People moving from the old land to the new land. Paul continues. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sends every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in His life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death is the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time, remember, you've been raised from the dead, into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Grace. M.T. Wright the great British New Testament scholar, reflecting on what Paul says in this passage, says, just picture it this way. You need a place to live, so you rent an apartment. I guess it would be a flat in the UK. 
You rent an apartment. You're in great need, so you take the apartment, even though you have some misgivings about the landlord. The landlord is awfully brusque, awfully harsh, very demanding almost from the word go, but you need the place, so you move in. You sign the contract. But the landlord doesn't end being brusque and harsh there. It just gets worse often pounding on the door, and when you open it to look out, he pushes past you into the place with no permission, making all kinds of demands, charging you for things that are not in the contract, berating you when you're not swift enough in the way you respond. All told, it's a terrible way to live. But you have no way out. You've signed the contract. If you were to break the contract, you owe way too much to be able to do so. And so you hunker down to survive life with that landlord. And then one day, somebody who cares about you, somebody who loves you, sees your plight and generously writes a check for the full amount of the rest of the contract and says, we're moving you. And sure enough, the person pays off the contract, comes, helps pack you up, and moves you across town to a brand-new apartment, a beautiful apartment with a very kind landlord. You move in, get all your furniture in place, you sink down into that lazy boy and heave a profound sigh of relief. I am free. And right about that time, Suddenly, there's a pounding on the door. It's a familiar pounding. You think, what is going on? You go, and you try to crack the door open just a piece to see who's there, and sure enough, it's the old landlord who smashes the door open, strides into the apartment, and picks up where he left off. All kinds of demands and berating and name-calling. What happened? What are you to do? Well, what you are to do, suggests N.T. Wright, is not try to duke it out with the landlord, but simply say, I am no longer under your power. I have been freed from that contract. I am a new person with a new place of residence, so you either leave or I will call the police and they will make you leave. In other words, you've been set free. You can now live a new life, a different life. You are empowered to behave in different ways because your address has changed, and you have a new landlord, one who loves you and cares about you and wants the best for you. And Paul has a word for that. The word is grace. Grace. Not just a grace that sets you free from what was, but a grace that empowers you to live in a new reality. As I read through this passage in Romans, I recognize that there are different ways that it could be summarized. In fact, the truth is, scholars wrestle with different perspectives on it. But I'm going to tell you, as I read it today, if I were pushed to summarize the passage with one word, the the word that I would use would be the word growth. 
growth. Don't continue to offer yourself as servants to sin. Don't continue to act as though you lived in that old apartment. Don't continue to behave that way. Grow into the reality of what you have truly already become. Grow up in Jesus. And that will require his grace. I think Lewis Meads, the late Lewis Meads, in unpacking the different meanings of grace, says it particularly well. Listen to what Smeeds writes. Most people who experience the grace of God at all experience it on one or more of four levels. First one is we experience grace as pardon. We are forgiven for wrongs we have done. Pardoning grace is the answer to guilt. Secondly, we experience grace as acceptance. We are reunited with God in our true selves, accepted, cradled, held, affirmed, and loved. Accepting grace is the answer to shame. Third, we experience grace as power. It provides a spiritual energy to shed the heaviness of shame and in the lightness of grace, move toward the true self God means us to be. And then finally, we experience grace as gratitude. It gives us a sense for the gift of life, a sense of wonder and sometimes elation at the lavish generosity of God. Well, today we're talking about that third expression of grace, that expression of grace as power to live a new life, a power that enters into us by the Spirit of God that strengthens us to do what we could never do on our own. We don't deserve it, but He gives it to us in abundance through the power of His Holy Spirit. In fact, I think one of the most simple and yet gripping statements Jesus made was when he promised that power to his disciples and said to them, you know how to give good gifts to your children. None of you, if your son, if your daughter asked you for something that was good, would give them something bad. So just understand, he says, God is that way. If you want the Holy Spirit, he is aching to give you that spirit. And with that spirit comes the gift of empowering grace, the grace to grow. So I want to point you to two lessons. Two lessons that for me grow out of this passage and this concept of empowering grace, grace that strengthens us to grow. Lesson number one, God's grace leads us not to perfectionism, but to maturity. God's grace leads us not to perfectionism, but to maturity. Notice again the last few verses of what we read in Romans 6, this time from the TNIV. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, don't let the old landlord in to tell you how you have to live. 
Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Give yourself to the new landlord, not the old. For sin, verse 14, shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you are entering into a process of growth because you are under His grace, because you are filled with His grace. You will grow. You will change. It doesn't have to perpetually be a sin and repent, sin and repent cycle. You can grow. But that toward which we grow is not perfectionism, but maturity. Paul is clear on that in another passage in Ephesians 4 when he calls us to grow up to the full stature of the full measure of Christ, become spiritually mature in him. I grew up in a world in terms of Adventism. I wish I could tell you we were the only community afflicted with this, but as I came to years and began to study, I realized we were not alone. I grew up in a world in Adventism where perfectionism for many was the order of the day. This is what you have to do. You have to become sinlessly perfect if you are ever going to enter into the kingdom of God. I must say, that same, and I'm going to say it clearly, heresy is abroad in our land today. You must become absolutely, utterly, sinlessly perfect. When the New Testament call is to maturity in Christ, I remember a conversation I had. It was a serious conversation. It was not joking. Let me be clear about that. It was years ago before I was on the pastoral team at this church, but it was on this campus not too many paces from the front door. Conversation with someone I had along these lines, and that individual said to me, with all seriousness, I have overcome every sin in my life except one. I'm working on that one now. And when I'm done with that one, I'll be ready for translation. Now, I'm tempted to either laugh or cry. I'm not sure which. Because I happen to know a number of other people who also knew this particular individual, and I knew them better than I knew this person. And I had conversations with them, and they were only too eager to list the sins he hadn't quite yet overcome yet. There was a whole list of them, and it was affecting their community and affecting them in very damaging ways. But in the middle of it all, set this person saying, I've overcome them all, just one to go. If you've ever been a part of that world, you realize that that is a road that has a ditch on either side. On the one side is the ditch of pride, which I believe is where this person found themselves. That ditch that said, I'm doing great. I'm in the fast lane on the road to glory, so get out of my way. 
I've got one exit to go. When I pass that exit, I'm crossing the borders of the promised land. And they're filled with a sense of pride at what they have accomplished and blind to it. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road, which is, quite frankly, more often where I found myself. And that's the ditch of feeling like I never measure up. When I look into the moral mirror, I realize I will never make it. There is no way, because of all that I have left to do, to achieve that state. And so despair settles in. A place where you end up saying, there is no way I can make it except, except by the grace of God. And it's right there. Paul says, amen to that. That's the only way any of us will make it from beginning to end. It is all of grace. Even though the way the grace is experienced and what purpose the grace serves may differ. In some cases, the grace of God serves to cleanse us, in others to accept us, in others to empower us. As he calls us to grow toward maturity in Christ. That's the call. Paul says in this passage, don't keep offering your members, that's yourselves, your eyes, your hands, your feet, your words, your lips. Don't keep offering those to serve the old landlord. Instead, offer them to serve the new landlord. And in the process, you will be changed as a disciple of Jesus to become more deep and more mature in him. God's grace, that's our first lesson. God's grace leads us not to perfectionism, but to maturity. But I think there's a second lesson in this passage. Second lesson. God's grace leads us not to old sinning, but to new living. God's grace leads us not to old sinning, but to new living. So back to Romans, back to Romans chapter 6. This time, I want you to notice again verse 4. And think as we read this of those who were baptized this morning, of what it says there. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? May live a new life. For this reason, that I made it a habit early in my ministry, which continues to this day, at the moment of baptism, to remind the candidate, to remind us, we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We're called not to old sinning, but to new living. One scholar commenting on this passage says, Remember... Remember the parable, the parable of the prodigal son. It's a parable we all love. Son, belligerent, bellicose brat, dad, drop dead, give me what comes to me. He throws that over his shoulder and heads off to a distant land where he lives it up with parting. When his money is gone, so are his friends. And he lands in the pigsty. 
covered with the slime of the swine. And it is there that he says, home, home. And so he comes staggering down the lane only to find that as he's rehearsing this speech, which might get him someplace there, that his father is racing down the lane, sweeping him up into his embrace and saying, we're going to have a party. Now, says the scholar, suppose that we move forward to three, four years into the future. Son has been living at home. His brother is basically tolerating him. He's enjoying the blessing and the benefits of his father. But honestly, life's a bit humdrum. None of the excitement, none of the pulse-pounding beat of life on the street. And so he says to himself, I wonder, what if I did that again? What if I get enough, go live it up for a while, and then come staggering home? Do you suppose I'll get another party? If I just sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent. Truth is, he will. God takes that risk. It's just the kind of God we have. But that's not what God desires for him. What the Father desires for him is to live a new life, to experience joy and growth and maturity, to walk in the rhythms of God's grace, to find the deep, lasting joy that only God can provide. That's what God desires. And God recognizes, even though we've changed apartments, sometimes our growth isn't fast. Sometimes, sometimes it comes, in our view, ponderously slow, these new steps in a new life. That's underlined by a rock star. Bono, of the rock band U2, puts it in a way to which I can relate. I want you to listen to what Bono says as he talks about the spiritual journey in his own life. He says, Your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that, I was lost, I'm found, it is probably more accurate to say, I was really lost. I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less, and a little less again. That, to me, says Bono, is the spiritual life the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. 
That's often the reality of learning to live the new life. And the God of whom I read in Scripture understands that. He knows our frame that we are but dust. And in patience and with the empowerment of His Holy Spirit teaches us to walk the new life. Think about it, parent. We can remember, we can mark the day when Austin took his first steps, when Miranda toddled along in my parents' house in Hawaii. We remember that day. I can tell you this. As those little ones were teetering and tottering along, when they fell, we didn't rush over there and say, get up, what's the matter with you? How are you falling down? Get up, you've got a new... Are you kidding me? We celebrated the steps they took, helped them up and said, come, come, come to Daddy, come to Mommy, as they continued to learn those steps in the new life they were experiencing. Why would we think it would be any different with God when he's moved us into a new apartment, said you have a new landlord, you have a new life ahead of you. I want you to change. Want your impatience to become patience, your anger to become forgiveness, your shame to become acceptance. I want your temptations to be overcome. I want you to grow to spiritual maturity in Christ, and I give you the grace of my Holy Spirit to do so. But it's going to be up and down. You might even want to learn a little wisdom from a rock star. Just a step at a time, a step at a time, and suddenly you wake up one day and realize, what happened to the person I was? I'm not that person anymore. And it's all by the grace of God. Now, don't misunderstand. If you are one of those people who, for reasons that are beyond my pay grade, God has chosen to reach into and transform you, and what you struggled with you no longer face, then I would say, praise God. Praise Him and bless Him for doing that for you. We have to admit we're a little envious, but it's not that way for a lot of us. We just continue to follow the lead, the guidance of the Spirit, and pray for the grace of the Spirit in our lives to walk the new life. So is it just sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent? As long as it is, God will forgive you. He will embrace you. But he has more for you, far more for you than that. Because God's grace does not lead us to perfectionism, but to maturity. Does not lead us to old sinning, but to new living. That is the grace that he pours into our life every single day. So my hope, my prayer, my challenge to you as my dear family is simply this. Grow in the grace of Jesus. Grow in Him every day because as His empowering grace moves into your heart and life, you will step and walk and run in the direction of the kingdom of God with His Spirit gracing you every step of the way.